Here's another thing to think about. If God isn't sovereign, completely sovereign over salvation, if God can be thwarted when he tries to save somebody, wants to save somebody, here's a good question. What's the point of prayers for the lost? Do you ever notice that? That when Arminians pray, they're Calvinists? Welcome to Skeptics and Seekers Sunday Sermon. This is 4S. I'm David Johnson. Let's get started. We are going to continue with our Calvinist friend from last week. I um, Calvinism is a very harsh doctrine that a lot of people have objections to, including me, and I had some things to say about his sermon at the end. But I just want you to know that, you know, just as an orator, as a preacher, as someone with passion about what they believe and who is not stupid, I like this guy. I like this guy. And so I want to give him a chance to answer some of the common objections to Calvinism. So we got uh, some objections to Calvinism, some very smart objections in the comments. Uh, you can uh, join in on those comments skepticsandseekers.squarespace.com. Just log in your Discuss account. Discuss away. It's fine. By the way, if you like what you hear here and you want to hear something even better from me, go to patreon.com slash red letters. Become a participant in the Red Letters Project. Patreon.com slash red letters. It's really cheap. <laughs> and you're going to enjoy it. You'll get my free book. It's free only if you... Um, Go there. It's $5 everywhere else. Get it free. Red uh, Patreon.com slash red letters. Now, we're continuing, like I said, with um, last week because he does have uh, a long series that he kind of spools everything out. We, we're not going to get a chance to go through all of that. And in fact, we only listened to some portion of his sermon last week. We're only going to listen to some portion of his sermon this week because the sermons are really, really long. But uh, this is a sermon dealing with objections to Calvinism, and uh, I thought it was only fair that uh, if we post something like that and, you know, a person also has some answers to common objections, it's probably fair to uh, show that side of it, too. So I am, unlike last week, I'm going to interrupt this one often because when he makes an objection— you know, he makes a point and he gives the common objection. Uh, he gives the answer to that. I'm probably going to chime in uh, at the point and give my take. So uh, without further ado, actually, there's going to be a lot of ado. Um, but without further ado for this section, let's hear uh, the first objection that he covers, at least the first one that he covers that I cover. Do you notice that? They argue that Jesus, you know, he could die for people and then he can fail to save them. The Spirit of God can try to save people, but God can be thwarted. But all of a sudden, when they get down before the Lord, they're like, God, change their heart. Lord, open their eyes to the truth. God, please save them. God, please bring about their... All of a sudden now, we're Reformed theologians. Right? I'm fine with that. But that's a contradiction, and it needs to be called down. If God can be thwarted in His salvation by the free will of man, then what's the point of praying for the lost? He's already done everything he can. Why pray for them? He's already tried to save. Jesus already died, but he can be thwarted. So why pray? I'll tell you why. Because every one of us, as image of God and as followers of Jesus, know deep down that God's the one that saves. It's got nothing to do with us. He's the one that does it. And that's why we pray. Because fundamentally, deep down, we're all Calvinists. 
So, uh, first of all, we're all Calvinists. Uh, that's an interesting uh, comment, and it was said flippantly, but there's some truth in it. Uh, I keep saying that mainstream Christianity is infused with Calvinism. It's, it's Calvinism all the way down, really. Uh, they just don't realize how much uh, their theology in, is infused by Calvinism. And so there is some Calvinism in, uh, in mainstream Christianity. Now, mainstream Christians would say, ah, there's some mainstream Christianity in Calvinism. <laughs> um, but even, even atheists are Calvinists, in a sense, because some of their strongest objections are against Calvinist ideas. And so Christians often end up arguing against Calvinism when they're arguing against atheists. However, atheists are not really wrong to have these ideas about the Christian God because they do carry over uh, so much into mainstream Christianity. So there's there's a lot of, if you kind of want to know where your objections come from, and Christians, kind of what uh, mainstream modern Christians, where you're thinking about God comes from, it's helpful to understand Calvinism. Uh, so it is highly influential. Now, this particular point that he's uh, railing against is a very interesting one, and it's one that I used to rail against as a Christian as well, because it caused a lot of cognitive dissonance for me. And I would love to hear from someone who can make a cogent argument on the side of the Christian for this. But it is when you pray, uh, often you will hear prayers. If you, if you are in church often, you will often hear prayers uh, for sinners, for someone to come to faith before it's too late, for the Lord, you know, Lord, please change their heart, you know, that sort of thing. I often wondered, what the heck are we praying for when we pray that? Do you really believe that God could change a person's heart? Well, I think a Christian would say, of course, of course they believe that. Now, a, a very liberal, very progressive Christian would say, no, God can't do that. Uh, but most Christians would say God can do it. He just won't do it. He wouldn't do it. Because God doesn't force people to believe, and God doesn't force people not to believe. And yet the prayer that these same mainstream Christians pray is for God to change someone's heart, to bring them to faith before it is too late. If this is a completely free will condition uh, thing that we do, that we come to God, then you are actually praying for God to violate someone's free will and to bring them to God. You are praying that God override someone's free choice and bring them to faith. Save them despite themselves. Make them change their heart. In fact, sometimes that is the prayer. Lord, change their heart. Um, what, are you, what are you asking for? <laughs> what are you praying for? You're actually praying a very Calvinist kind of prayer. Now, a Calvinist would say, no, God doesn't need to do anything new to change their heart. He already chose them from the beginning of time. So they are, in fact, uh, one of his, whether they know it or not. Uh, but you are, you are asking God to do a thing that on the other side of your mouth, you say that God 
uh, either couldn't or uh, could, but just would never do because it would violate one of your sacred principles, uh, which is free will. So make up your mind. You can have one or the other. You can't have both. The other part of that is when God, when you pray that prayer and God does not bring them to him as you prayed for, he does not change their heart as you prayed, then that must create in you some type of cognitive dissonance. Because here it is, here's a a righteous prayer that you're praying, and you clearly believe, whether it's true or not, you believe that God would do such a thing in your heart of hearts. Otherwise, why would you be praying for it? And yet he doesn't do it. And so what you have to believe at that point is God wanted that person to be lost. He, he didn't want to save him at all because you're praying for God to save, save him, which means that you are of the mindset that God could save him if he wanted to and that God would save him. And the reason I know you believe that God would do such a thing is because you're praying that prayer. <laughs> so otherwise you're just stupid. Why, why are you praying that prayer when you know he wouldn't do it? You know, it's like sitting around praying for, hey, God, give me wings because I really want to fly like a bird. Uh, please, God, give me wings. Why would you pray that if you didn't think that's something that he could and possibly would do? So you must have a lot of cognitive dissonance worshiping a God who doesn't want to save people. Um, yeah, why are you praying that? It's a very Calvinist notion, and you're willing to throw away the free will argument by praying for God to change someone's heart and bring them to faith. All right, let's, um, let's see what his next objection is. Another question. Are you denying that we're making choices? So if God is sovereign over salvation, if he's the one that has to grant repentance and faith, if God's the one who raises people to life, are, are you saying that there's no, we're not making choices like we're robots? Now, we've addressed this a few times over the course of this series, but something to consider is that what we're saying is that God is the truly free one. He is the one that is truly free. And that, watch, we are making choices. We're making choices all the time. But watch this. People make choices based upon their nature. So if your nature is fallen, then that fallen nature actually causes the choices or our wills to be with them fallen. So think about it for a minute now. I gave you the illustration of the vulture and the bunny, right? The vulture put it in a room with a pile of meat and a pile of carrots. Ask the vulture to make a choice. You can try to even convince the vulture, if we're possible, to eat the carrots. But what will the vulture freely choose between the pile of meat and the pile of carrots? It chooses the meat. Because by nature, the nature determines the activity of the will. Now take a rabbit, put it in front of the two choices. Pile of meat, pile of carrots. Now unless it's some zombie rabbit, okay, what is the rabbit going to freely choose? It's going to choose the the vegetable over the meat, freely. Now take a sinner and put a sinner before God and their sin. A fallen person before God and their sin. What will they freely choose? Their sin over God. Now, when God raises that dead person to life, he gives them a new nature. He regenerates them, gives them a new heart. Now put that person before Jesus in their sin. What do they choose freely? Jesus. We're making choices. And we're responsible for our choices. 
But God is sovereign over that. And I gave you illustrations. Joseph and his brothers, they sell him into slavery. They throw him into a pit. They do all these evil things. But what happens like 20 years later when Joseph is like head over Egypt, when his brothers finally come for rescue into Egypt for food, what does Joseph say to them? He says, you didn't send me here. God did. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. Not that he just made it work out for good, but God actually meant it. He meant your sin for good, to preserve for you a remnant and to keep many people alive. The murder of Jesus, one of the most wicked things committed in history, the most wicked thing committed in history. What's it say? The prayer of the church says what? Gathered in this city against your holy servant Jesus, people of Israel, Herod, Pontius Pilate, the Gentiles, to do what? To do whatever your hand had predestined to occur. Did they want to kill Jesus? Yes. Were they evil in their hearts? Yes. Did God make them do something against their will? No. But God had predestined that they would murder Jesus. For what purpose? His glory and your good. Do you see? We make choices. We are not robots. Naturally, the free will question is going to be a big one. That's going to always be uh, the ticket seller right there. And um, whereas I thought he had a good point for Calvinism in his first objection to Calvinism, there simply is no good point uh, for this objection, uh, the free will objection. And uh, his illustration of the rabbit and uh, I'm sorry, the vulture and the bunny. I like that illustration a lot, but I have to tell you that illustration shows the problem with his argumentation. <laughs> All right. Um, there is a, there's a real problem there and he doesn't seem to see it at all. So maybe he covers it somewhere, uh, in some other series. I didn't hear it in this one. Uh, in all fairness, I haven't listened to all of the series. It's a lot. Um, but someone who's Calvinistically inclined or someone who understands Calvinism better than I do, please tell me what the the uh, Calvinist objection is to my objection to their objection, <laughs> uh, which is uh, the vulture behaves according to his nature. He he freely chooses the meat, but that free choice is dictated by his nature, and he did not freely choose his nature. God gave him his nature. God gave the vulture a nature so that the vulture would always, every time, choose the meat over the carrots. And God gave the bunny the nature to always freely choose the carrots over the meat. And so I don't see why, I don't see what it buys you to say that the vulture and the bunny or the human freely chooses anything if what they are freely choosing is dictated by a nature that they didn't freely choose. You're just kicking the can down a road, the road a little bit so that you can work some free choice in there. But once you catch up with the can again, you still got to ask, okay, well then why did God give them that nature? He could have given the vulture a nature to want to prefer vegetables over meat, but he didn't. And the same thing is with humans. Why do we have a nature 
that prefers sin over Jesus. Now, he is going to get to this uh, later, and so I'll let him speak for himself, but this is this is just the obvious, to me, the obvious hole in the argument. And so uh, the free will objection to Calvinism still stands as far as I'm concerned, and he does not cover this any better than any other Calvinist I've ever heard on the subject. Now, here's a big one. Somebody says, well, if God is completely sovereign over salvation, and if he saves his elect people, then what about John 3.16? What does John 3.16 say? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. You hear a verse like that. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish. And what people often tend to do with that passage is they tend to quote it in terms of capacity. That what we mean when we quote that is, whosoever will believe in him will not perish. Like as though everybody has the capacity. They, they treat John 3.16 as though that verse means the whole world has the capacity to believe in Jesus. So if they will, they'll have eternal life. But actually... The text itself says nothing about capacity, people's abilities to do this or that. The word or the term, whoever believes or whosoever believes in him, is the Greek, pas, ha, pistuon. Now that occurs six times in the New Testament, John 3.15, John 3.16, John 12.46, Acts 13, 39, Romans 10, 11, and 1 John 5, 1. And in all those contexts, that term, that terminology, has nothing to do with capacity or ability. It has to do, it means this, so that every believing one, so that everyone believing would have eternal life. So let's read it actually as it is. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that every believing one would have eternal life, would not perish. That's what the promise is. What is it a promise for? It's not a blanket general promise to the world that they have the ability to believe. It's actually a promise to believers. Everyone believing in Jesus will have eternal life and will never perish. That is for you, Christian. That's for you. But what of the world, what of the word world? For God so loved the world. What's important here is to think about context. Think about audience. Think about who wrote this. John is a Jew. In that very passage, who is he talking to? John 3. Anyone know? Who's he talking to? Nicodemus. Who is Nicodemus? He's a Pharisee. The Pharisees, we know about them from the New Testament, what they believed and what they were like. Think about this as the context. They thought Gentiles were sinners, were dogs, were outside many ways, the grace of God. As a matter of fact, in, you know the, the, the Samaritan, the story of the Samaritan, right? They saw the Samaritans as sort of halvesies, right? Kind of Jewish, kind of not. The result of syncretism, 
dirty. They would even take a different route around Samaria to avoid contact with these half-breeds, these almost-Jews. You see, they believed in that day, of course, that salvation was of the Jews, and it is, but they forgot that the promise to Abraham was that Abraham's descendants would be as numerous as the stars, and that in Abraham, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. That Jew and Gentile would be brought together in one people of God. That the world, Jews and Gentiles, were being brought to God in salvation. All the families of the earth were going to be blessed and returned to worship God. And so when Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, a Pharisee, I believe that he is correcting. God so loved the world, Nicodemus, not just Jews, Jews and Gentiles, that he gave his unique and one and only son so that everyone believing, so that every believing one would have eternal life and not perish. The text says nothing about people's abilities, it says nothing about salvation for every single person who has ever lived. Also consider this. The word world is used in many different ways in the scriptures. I'll give you an example. In John 12, 19, it's used as people are following Jesus. All these different people following Jesus. What's their response? They say, look, the whole world is following him after him. Question. When, G, when they say that about Jesus, the whole world is following Jesus, did they mean that every single person in the entire world is following Jesus? We recognize what they meant. So the text in John 3.16, when it says God so loved the world, it doesn't necessarily mean that God is salvifically loving every single person who has ever lived. Another example in terms of how John uses that word in Revelation 5.9 he talks about Jesus purchasing out of every tribe, tongue, and language people for God. For God so loved the world. Yeah, this is a, this is a fun one. Uh, let me just say, anytime you see a preacher mansplaining, they start mansplaining the Greek, or they start mansplaining the context, uh, they, they start mansplaining the translation, Look out! You you might be uh, you you're possibly being fed a line. Now, um, having said that, there are unfortunate translations. <laughs> That's that is true. I think sometimes translators get a little bit uh, enthusiastic, and maybe you'll you'll learn just enough Greek to challenge some of the uh, some of the translations. But honestly, when Every translator, every translation that you have ever read reads a word like world, God so loved the world, then you have to come up with a really good reason why we should ignore all of the translators. It's not like half of them say world and half of them say something else. They, they pretty much all say the same thing. So... Uh, there are lots of English words to choose from and lots of English phrases. If what, if what was really meant is that God loved a subset of the world, the ones who would believe in him so that he gave his son, they could have said that. Paul could have said that. There are, there are Greek words for that, <laughs> and, uh, and he could have used them. 
uh, if translators thought that's what he meant, they could have written that. I'm not even aware of any non-English translations that don't essentially say God so loved the world, as in the whole world, in uh, in foreign language. So there might be some, if you know of some, uh, bring them to my attention. Uh, love to know about it. This is one of those things that's so universally translated. I'm not saying that the preacher couldn't be wrong, that his minority report couldn't be wrong. Don't Don't misunderstand. I don't dismiss reports just because they're minority reports. But it's a minority report from a guy who is not a scholar, and his uh, critique is against pretty much every scholar that translates the Bible. So at this point, to make your case, you've really got to explain to me why all of those other people were wrong in their unfortunate translation, and you're right. Uh, and and he doesn't attempt to do that, you know, just a little bit of mansplaining. You know, he's got some insight that apparently they don't have, uh, or maybe they all have it, but, you know, it's only the scholars who have it, and the average person, the common person who reads this, they just don't understand. Uh, you know, they're not treating the Bible enough with respect. You've got to, you know, there's some kind of special pleading that's usually going on when someone goes into explanations like this, and they don't give the one explanation that for me really matters, which is why should I ignore every scholar who is more educated than you on this and who has spent more of their life than you on this? And they said this thing, why should I listen to you over them? Now, if I give a minority report, I'm going to go with, I'm going to, I'm going to tell you why I think I'm right and why I think every, every other scholar in the world is wrong. I'm not a scholar. Um, so I've got to make that case. It's a hard case. It's a tough case to make. Uh, big mountain to climb. So uh, I'm doing some of that mountain climbing over own red letters, if you want to hear uh, how I handle some of this. Patreon.com slash red letters. Uh, so I would have liked to have seen something like that rather than for him to just say, you people are just wrong because you're not reading the Bible carefully and the translators maybe should have chosen a different word. And this is the real meaning when you understand the real context, um, context, subtext, pretext, and anything except the actual text. So, um, all right. Uh, he gave his uh, son and whosoever believes uh so whoever whosoever will is a um is a con concept that i grew up with a lot i think there is a at least a song uh by that title whosoever will and uh the idea of course is that the gospel is open to everyone equally and everyone can just accept it if they want to whosoever will there's a very Calvinistic idea that says, no, it's not like that at all. You don't, you don't simply will yourself to believe. You don't believe in God on your own abilities. So uh, in order to believe, it takes more than a good brain. 
You're going to have a good brain. You can be a literary scholar. You can be a New Testament scholar. None of that is going to help you believe. The only thing that will get you to believe is if God provides the grace that grants you the capacity to believe. So if God wants you to believe, you'll believe. If God does not want you to believe, he will not give you the capacity to believe. But on our own, we are dead. We Dead people don't have the capacity to fix themselves. Someone with resurrection power has to come along and do all of the work. There's no work that a dead person can do. Uh, so if you are, are a believer, it's not because you made the right choices, because you heard the right sermon, because you responded in the right way has nothing to do with that. It's because God gave you the gift of belief. Now, you may have heard this before uh, from some of my uh, conversations with Dale. Um, this is not just a Calvinistic view. This is in many uh, aspects of mainstream Christianity as well. Now, they might say it a little bit differently, uh, they would say that you still have the choice to believe or not believe, but the Holy Spirit gives you the capacity to believe. So you still you don't have the capacity to believe unless the Holy Spirit unlocks that for you. But once they unlock that capacity, then it's up to you to either act on it or not act on it. So this, this is how the Christians would do that. But they would agree with the Calvinist that an, an alien sinner, someone who is dead in their sins, does not, on their own, have the capacity to stop being dead in their sins. They don't have the capacity to just hear the right sermon or think the right thoughts and then start believing. The capacity to do that has to be unlocked as a special gift of the Holy Spirit. The Calvinist just takes it a step further and says, uh, not only does God give you the capacity he also gives you the belief, right? Because uh, the capacity to um, believe is uh, only unlocking a door, but you still have to do the work of going through it. And so one could say that you have done your part of, for salvation. But the Calvinists would say, you don't have a part in salvation. God has either preordained you to be saved or he has not. If he has, he has done all of it. You have done none of it. You didn't walk through the door once, once you were shown the door. God moved you in such a way to walk through the door. <laughs> You're not... You're not doing this on your own. Uh, so uh, this is this is an interesting uh, take and one that you can kind of see. You can see a little bit of uneasy uh, discomfort between Calvinists and traditional Christians uh, with this regard, because there is a difference. And in, in if if um, the mainstream Christian doesn't know Calvinism very well, they may not be able to put their finger. On the difference, well, I hope that I've helped you out 
uh, and that's where your discomfort is. You're welcome. Um, but of course, I would uh, I would just have to say that if we as people are waiting on God to do anything, then we cannot possibly be culpable for not believing. I don't. There there are uh, aspects of Christianity that I don't believe in. That in my current configuration, I cannot believe. I do not have the capacity to believe in certain propositions in my current configuration. I do not believe, even if it is true on some cosmic level, I do not believe that there is a pink elephant in my room with me. Not only do I not believe it, I cannot believe it. I am incapable of believing it. I am not drunk enough to believe it, and I don't drink. So it's going to be really, really hard for someone to get me to believe it. I can't do it. You would have to do something to alter my brain to get me to believe that proposition. This is what the Christian is really saying about belief in God. You you are dead in your sins, and you can't believe unless God unlocks it for you. And I'm telling you right now, you can say that I'm dead in my sins, whatever you want to say. I don't, I don't actually care. In my current configuration, I cannot, I am incapable of believing uh, today the the faith claims that Christians would have me believe. So in what way is it my fault <laughs> that I don't believe? Well, um, see his answers on um, free will and uh, once again be as confused as me because uh, even though he didn't go into it fully for the Calvinist, the human will is sin. It, it, now, I don't care how it got here. You know, you can say that it, it got here because of Adam and Eve's sin. Maybe that had some kind of different will, and then we were born with a sin will, but it doesn't matter. Our nature right now, our, our nature is oriented to sin. We cannot do anything but sin. Our mind is on sin all the time. No one, they would quote the Bible, no one seeks the Lord. So how can anyone be saved? It's not because they sought out the Lord. It's because the Lord sought them out and changed them. That's it. So my nature, for for however you say it got here, is incapable in its current configuration of belief in the things that I am supposed to believe in order to be saved. And I imagine there are lots of listeners out there that are the same way. You just as well be told to believe that there is a pink elephant in your room with you right now. Good luck with that. So moving on past John 3.16, somebody might say, are you saying that Jesus died for the elect? That he actually purchased only the elect? My answer would be, that's, well, that's what the Bible teaches, yes. And they would say, well, I couldn't believe that because I couldn't believe in a limited atonement. And here's my response. Every Christian limits the atonement. Every single one of us. We all limit the atonement. It's a question of how you limit it. Let me give you an example. How does the Calvinist limit the atonement? What's that? It, they lim we limit and say, no, it was for a specific people, 
and it actually accomplished something for those people. It was a real atonement. It was real wrath. It was real propitiation for a particular people, right? So we limit the number. Now, I happen to believe that the vast majority of humanity at the end of time will actually have experienced redemption. I, I do believe that personally. I think I could defend that from the scriptures. I'm willing to be corrected. But I actually think that's a very hopeful thing, and I think we can see that. I just want to say that that's a surprising statement coming from him. I believe that most Calvinists actually believe the same way I believe from the biblical literature that the vast majority of people who ever lived and whoever will live will be lost. They will go to hell. They they will not be saved. And I'm I'm not talking about a simple majority, 51%. I'm talking about a super majority. Um you know, over over seventy five percent will will be lost. Uh, so, I I just I find that a little bit surprising uh, coming from him. And so, belief in Jesus is a requirement from him. I know that. And so, I'm not sure how he gets his numbers if belief in Jesus is a requirement, because best numbers, best case scenario about a third of the population believe in uh, are Christians, about a third. And that's Christian uh, with a kind of a small c, Christendom, people who are kind of loosely Christian. I'm pretty sure that that number counts people who just kind of grew up in Christianity but fell away or grew up in Christian-ish cults that aren't even recognized by Christianity. That's a It's a really big number, and when you talk to most Christians, they would want to whittle that number down in a hurry. I'm sure he would be the same way, and so it's a little bit surprising to hear him say, that he thinks that most people in the world will be saved. I'm not sure how you get that if you believe that belief uh, in the Christian God, belief in Jesus, acceptance of his uh, message and his sacrifice, if that's the criteria, most people don't fit it. Most people don't fit it. (laughs) And so I don't know uh, if he thinks there's going to be some huge evangelistic uh, resurgence that happens late in the game so that the majority of people will end up that we have billions and billions and billions of people somehow convert so that the number tilts in the favor of belief. I'm just not sure, uh, though, how a Calvinism uh, Calvinist could ever say they think that most people will be saved. Now, he is right. That's hopeful. That's cute but it's very inconsistent with the rest of your belief and the facts we know about uh, people in the world and their beliefs. Sorry, uh, bro, you lose me there. However, yes, we believe that God limits in terms of who he saves, but the Arminian also limits the atonement because what do they say? They say that Jesus died a death, watch, for everybody who ever lived and it could be for those people and they still spend an eternity in hell forever. Jesus secured it, he died for them and they'll still suffer eternity away from God. 
So the Arminian limits the efficacy of the atonement. What they say is this, you can have Jesus dying for your sins and it won't matter. You'll still go to hell. Jesus bears the wrath of God in your place and you still go to hell. They limit the atonement's efficacy. So everybody limits the atonement. It's a question of, is your view of the atonement and its limitations biblical? Next, somebody says what? It's not what? Fair. It's not fair. Are you, tell, are you telling me that God has chosen to save people but not others? They say what? That's not fair. What does it reveal when someone says that's not fair? It reveals that their view of sin is not biblical. It reveals, that their, it, it reveals that their view of God's holiness is not biblical. Because if we truly understood, like Isaiah says, all of our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. If we felt about our sin the way that Isaiah did, when he gets a glimpse of God's holiness, what does he say? Woe is me. I'm undone. I'm a man of unclean lips. You see, if we had that view of our sin and God's holiness, then the real thing we'd be asking is this, why does God save one? Everybody looks at Romans 9 and what do they say? Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated. And what do we say when we look at that? We say, why did God hate Esau? But if we understand the word of God, that's the wrong question. The better question, if you're thinking biblically, is this. Why would God ever love Jacob? He's a sinner like Esau. I understand the hostility with Esau and God. Esau's a sinner. God is holy. Esau's a rebel. God is good. And there's a rebellion there. I get the hostility there. But what I find peculiar is that a holy God would love a person like Jacob. What I find even more peculiar is that God doesn't just love Jacob and save him. God loves Jeff. God loves Robin. God loves Mary Lee. God loves Candy. God loves Sage. God loves Esther. God loves John. God loves Matt. God loves not just Jacob, but he loves a multitude, a myriad of other sinners. And I don't get it. So actually the answer is this. It's not fair. The answer is... You're right. It isn't fair. It is imminently not fair that God saves anyone. It's grace. It's not fair. No, what we don't want from God is fairness. What you don't want to do is walk into a court before a judge and say, Your Honor, give me all you got. Right? What you don't do is walk into God's court and say, God, be just with me. You don't want that. You want God's grace and his mercy. You plead with God. God, don't be just with me. Don't be just with my sin. Give me your grace. Give me your mercy. Don't give me your justice. Don't bring your law to bear. Don't do it in my life. God, please give me Jesus. Give me your grace. That's what you want, not fairness, but mercy and grace. Because if God was fair to humanity, what he would do with that one lump is take the entire lump and throw it out. But he chose with the same lump, Romans 9, to make vessels of honorable use that he would mercy and vessels of dishonorable that he would harden. Yeah, I don't know what else I can add to this, guys. Um, this is where 
this is one of the places where the wheels just fall off of Calvinism. And the Calvinists are twirling their evil mustaches uh, and admitting, yeah, we're the villains. <laughs> so this, this is just uh, one of those places. And, you know, God bless uh, the Calvinists uh, because they don't shy away from this. But I just want to say this is uh, there are many mainstream Christians who feel the same way. So uh, when I was uh, in in church as a Christian, especially uh, in the churches of Christ, I've, I've been in several, but especially in um, the more conservative churches that I participated in, uh, we would always say something like that. Yeah, um, life is not fair. Sometimes good things happen to people. <laughs> and, and honestly, good things should never happen to people because we're all evil sinners and all of our righteousness, the, the most righteous person being at their most righteous on their best day is still compared to God like filthy rags. That's the most righteous person being their most righteous self on their best day. And it goes downhill from there. No one should be saved. No one should be saved. It's not fair at all that anyone is saved. And also the playing field is not level because God has arbitrarily before the beginning of time chosen the people who would be saved and he saves them despite themselves despite their despicableness he saves them anyway so he saves one sinner and not another sinner and neither one of them on their own did anything to earn salvation they should both have been lost in hell, but God arbitrarily, from our perspective, saved one of them. And the thing to know is he didn't save one of them because they responded to the gospel. That's not what the Calvinists believe at all. They responded to the gospel because God had already chosen them to be saved. So it's not fair. And with that, with that rigged system, Christianity any Christianity that is tainted by Calvinism dies the bad death at that point. There's no reason for you to continue listening to a Calvinist after they acknowledge that. We're done. I'm out. Next. If God is sovereign over everything, then it makes God responsible for evil. What I would quote is the London Baptist Confession of Faith, same thing as the Westminster Confession. It says this, God hath decreed in himself from all eternity by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will, freely and unchangeably, all things whatsoever come to pass. Yet so as thereby is God neither the author of sin, nor hath fellowship with any therein, nor is violence offered to the will of the creature, nor yet is the liberty or contingency of second causes taken away, but rather established. 
in which appears his wisdom in disposing all things and power and faithfulness in accomplishing his decree. Here's a summary. Ready? God is sovereign and he works through primary causes and secondary means. When we say God is sovereign over any sinful act, we are not saying that God made sinners do anything. They're doing what they want to do. And watch, if God hadn't restrained them, they would have done worse. I just have to jump in right here. If God hadn't restrained them, they would have done worse. So what it sounds like is that God is meddling with your free will. <laughs> because um, you had the free will to do some evil, but then you were restrained from willing to do other evil. <laughs> so I don't, I don't understand the game that's being played here. And so uh, this is probably the part of Calvinism that has the greatest amount of cognitive dis dissonance. This goes back to the whole uh, free will discussion. So I don't want to uh, rehash all of that, but I just wanted to point out where the Calvinists don't seem to be hearing uh, themselves. It, it is very important that they remove all blame and culpability from God while keeping God's sovereignty absolute. So in some way, God made us and gave us the will we have, but we will to sin freely, and God just lets us do that and, and uses us causes us to do the sin that we want to do, but then stops us from wanting to do other sins. And I, no, my brain breaks here. And if your brain doesn't break there, I, I want to see the brain scan. <laughs> I want to see the brain scan of the person who hears that and thinks, oh yeah, that makes perfect sense. They do what they want to do, but God in his sovereignty determines what they will and won't do for his glory and our good. God is not responsible for evil. It's a wicked thing to even suggest so. Next, and here's a big one. Ready? Go to your Bibles. We're going to do this quickly. First John chapter 5. It's a big one. And hopefully I've already answered most of it. First John chapter 5. Ready? Verse 1. My bad. 1 John 2. One. Ready? My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. He's talking to the church, Christians. But if anyone does sin... We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation. Stop. What's the word propitiation mean? A full satisfaction of the wrath of God. Propitiation means, watch, God diverted his wrath away from you, and he gave it to Jesus, and Jesus exhausted it. It's a full payment of sin. It's a turning aside of wrath. Got to get that. Listen closely. Propitiation means to divert wrath, to turn it aside, to exhaust it. Great? Now watch. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Now someone looks at that text, they proof text it. It's one of the three main proof texts for Arminianism. 
And they say, look, it says that Jesus is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. See, Jesus' cross work was for everybody. Now, let's just look at it on the face of it, brothers and sisters. Propitiation means a turning aside of wrath, a full satisfaction of the wrath of God. So let's do it in context. Ready? He is the full satisfaction of the wrath of God for our sins and the sins of the whole world. Now watch. What view would you get if you really believe that? That Jesus fully exhausted the wrath of God for our sins and the sins of every person who ever lived. What would you get? Universalism. Because watch this. If all of the sins of every person who's ever lived have been fully exhausted and fully turned aside and given to Jesus, then that means there are no more sins to be dealt with. Nobody goes to hell. So if we just understand what the word propitiation means, then we, understood, we have to understand that this could not possibly mean that Christ propitiated for every sin of every person Whoever lived. But think about context. Remember we said in the beginning? Author, audience, content, context, comparison. How do you read this? First, we know the world. Propitiation means a full satisfaction of wrath. Next, we know that the word world could be used in a number of different ways. We see that in John chapter 12, verse 19. The whole world is following Jesus. Romans chapter 1, the apostle Paul says their faith is being proclaimed throughout the whole world. Was it being proclaimed in Canada in the first century? Certainly not Canada. We see that John, who wrote the epistle of John, also wrote Revelation 5, where it says that Jesus purchased out of every tribe, tongue, and nation, language, people for God. But here's a good point of how John thinks. Hold your finger in 1 John. Now go quickly to John, the Gospel of John. And go to verse 11. John 11. And look at what John records starting in verse 47. John 11, 47. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, watch. Everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away our, both our place and nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, listen, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, watch, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. The nation of Israel and the people of God, the children of God, scattered abroad. So the same John writes his epistle, and he says that Jesus is our representative. He's the righteous one. He is the propitiation for our sins, but not just for our sins, church. The sins of the whole world, Jew and Gentile, slave, free, barbarian, Greek, all the world. Now remember, words matter. Context matters. If we say that Jesus propitiated for the sins of every person who has ever lived, you get universalism. Next, and these are rather quick, Matthew chapter 23, 
is another popular one when people quote proof texts to argue against Reformed theology, the doctrines of grace. In Matthew chapter 23, verse 37, let me tell you how it's normally read. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often I wanted to gather you together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. You see, there's an example of Jesus desiring to bring Jerusalem, and Jerusalem wasn't willing. They just didn't want to come. I'll read it again. Let's see if you can catch what I did, because it's most often quoted this way. Pay close attention. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often I would have gathered you together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. Who caught it? Did you catch it? Say it nice and loud. What did I do? See what I did there? See, you didn't even, you were looking at the text and you still didn't see it. You see how, you see how subtle that is? Now try and look again. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often I wanted to gather you together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you were not willing. Do you see it now? What did I drop out of the verse? Gathered your what? Children. Who is Jesus talking to in Matthew 23? The scribes, the Pharisees. What does he say to them? Woe to you. Woe to you, you whitewashed tombs. He says, woe to you. He condemns them over. It's, it's, it's actually amazing. Meek and mild Jesus, hardly. Jesus is completely laying it down on them. And Jesus says, all the blood of the righteous from Abel, he names his last prophet, will be upon this generation. He actually says in the, in the texts, he says, these are the days of vengeance, that all the blood's going to be upon them. And he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, that kills the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered, synagogued your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. Who was not willing? The leadership of Jerusalem, constantly oppressing the people of God. I wanted to synagogue your I wanted to synagogue my children. I wanted to gather my children like a hen gathers her chicks under her wings and you were not willing. You stone the prophets and you kill those who are sent to you. Who is Jesus condemning here? The leadership in Jerusalem. How he would gather the children of Israel and it's the leadership who are always resisting God and fighting against God. Nothing in this text here says that Jesus could want to save somebody and he couldn't do it. As a matter of fact, and this is just an aside, check this, this is really cool. It's actually very neat. Keep your finger there. How often I wanted to gather your children, right? As a, bro- as, as a hen gathers her brood under her wings. The word there is the word you get synagogue from. Gathered, synagogue. How often I wanted to synagogue you together. Synagogue is the word, okay? Now watch. Now when Jesus talks about the destruction of Jerusalem, you get to the famous... The famous part where it talks about he's going to come in great glory. Watch, in verse 31 of Matthew 24, and he will send out his angels. It means messengers. Don't think angelic beings. It means messengers with a loud trumpet call, and they will synagogue his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. 
amazing. He says to Jerusalem, you stone the prophets, you kill those who are sent to you, you're always resisting, gathering my children, right? And then at the end of Matthew 24, after he just condemned them for trying to stop him from gathering his people, what does it say he's going to do? He's going to send his messengers and they will synagogue his people from around the world. I think that's awesome. I think it's awesome. Quickly, 1 Timothy 2, 4 is a popular one. And I think it's rather quick and simple to get through. These are typical proof texts that are used to fight against Reformed theology. 1 Timothy 2, 4. I'll start in verse 1. First of all, then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. First point, the context is that prayers and supplications be made for all people. Question, do you believe that the Apostle Paul was asking you to get out the phone book and to start praying for every single person in the phone book? Kids, there was this thing before. When you read the context, what does he say? You persecuted Christians who are right now under the boot of Rome being persecuted. He says... He's, I urge you that supplications, prayer, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, guys, for kings and all who are in high positions. Make them for everybody, for rulers, authorities, kings, and high positions. Because God desires for all, what? All people to be saved and come to knowledge of the truth. It's not just you peasant people, kings and those in high authority, all people. This is referring to all kinds of people. The context itself clearly gives to us an understanding that there are different kinds of people here, classes of people here, kings and all who were in high positions. Remember, the Christians at this time were being persecuted, were experiencing difficulties. As a matter of fact, not long after this, it was both Rome and the Jews who were opposed to the church and trying to destroy her. And the Christians here are being told to live a quiet life, a godly life, dignified in every way, and to pray and to make supplications and intercessions, thanksgiving for all people, kings and all who are in high positions. God desires all people, what? All kinds of people, all classes of people to be saved and to come to knowledge of the truth. Watch, here's how you know with clarity what's being said. Verse 5, For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Now question, is Jesus mediating for people who will go to hell forever? When someone's in hell, is Jesus mediating for them? So the text clearly cannot be speaking about Jesus mediating and ransoming people who actually spend eternity in hell. I think we're good now. I don't want to go too much farther over time. 
I want to just end with this. Somebody might say, you can't demand or command someone to love. You ever hear that? You can't command someone to love. You can't demand someone's love. People give this false portrait of God in Reformed theology that he's like this oppressive. They call him, watch, you ever heard this one? They call God a divine rapist in Calvinism, right? He's a divine rapist who forces his love onto people. First of all, first of all, what a fiction to spin something like that and say that God takes a dead person raised into life, that that's divine rape. God giving mercy and salvation to unworthy people, that's divine rape. But watch, when someone says this, you can't command somebody to love somebody. Can't do it. That's not real love. What I would say is, do you read your Bible, bro? Because what are the two greatest commandments? What does God command everybody as his greatest commandments? What's the first one? Love God. What's God doing? Commanding his image bearers that he's made out of his love to love him. How can God command people to love him? Are you ready? Because he's worthy of it. And not to love God who is worthy of love is wicked. This is why God can command people to love him. Because he's infinitely worthy of it and valuable. And God commands us to love one another. Now I would say the summary of this entire series should be understood in this. The holy God of the universe, who is all-powerful, just, righteous, blameless, chose to set his love upon unworthy people who, if left to themselves, would have continued down the path of death and destruction, and they would have done it willingly. God raises dead people to life and gives to them what they could never do in themselves. So watch, watch. So that he could love them and they would love him back. I think that that's a beautiful message. And brothers and sisters, I believe that it's a message worth dying for. And again, I'll say, I believe that if we lose these truths, we ultimately lose the gospel. And so I do believe that there are tertiary issues, side issues, adiaphora, on the side as Christians that we should never divide over and separate over, but then there are core issues like the gospel of grace that we have to fight with all we've got for. These truths transform. Don't lose them. Let's pray. And there we have it, folks. I uh, wanted to let that last section uh, play out. I'm going to be talking about this last section in the next red letter. So if you're following both of these podcasts, we are just happened to be at that place as a coincidence. So it was not planned. Um, we just happen to be in that place in the book. And so the idea of God commanding love can love in fact be commanded. Well, we have one vote from a Christian saying, absolutely, God can command love. Absolutely, God is commanding love. He uh, raises people uh, who are dead in their sins uh, to life. And his explanation, so they can love him and he them. 
so it is it is very much uh, the way I describe it in the book and the way I'm going to describe it next week. We'll try to include some nuance in there and uh, we'll see if we can find some uh, some counter opinions that will make their way into my podcast. So whether or not you are subscribed to Red Letters, patreon.com slash red letters, whether you're not uh, whether or not you're subscribed over there, now that you have some idea of what's coming up uh, next week, I do believe I'm going to get to it next week, uh, you can drop your comments right here. Squarespace, uh, that is skepticsandseekers.squarespace.com. Uh, log in your disgust, throw it in there. And uh, your your opinions are just as good as uh, as the opinions of the members uh, over on Red Letters. And so if I see some interesting opinions over here from people who are not normally over there, uh, that will still inform uh, the comments I have. So I'm going to leave it there next week. I don't want to promise. I always hate to promise what's coming up next week because it, these things are hard to predict. But next week, my intention is to bring you some John Piper because I love me some John Piper. And I've had a, I've had a tab open with John Piper in it for uh, two or three weeks now. And uh, I'm ready to, uh, to, to uh, listen to some John Piper and uh, talk about him. Don't be surprised if John Piper uh, in some of his sermons are not recurring themes here, simply because uh, I personally uh, have always uh, liked John Piper's style. And so uh, we'll hear from him hopefully next week. We'll see you then. Bye-bye now.